0: Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verati, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. We're back after a nice September sleep to kick off the Halloween season, and I could not be more excited to start our new round of episodes with a guest whose film work includes tales of savage vengeance and eyeball-gouging terror. His film, Angel of Death, allowed acclaimed stuntwoman Zoe Bell to wreak bloody havoc, and his Halloween-set fright film, Hellbent, is widely celebrated as the first gay slasher. A celebrated writer, director, and producer, please welcome to the show, Paul Etheridge Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. I'm so glad that you're our first guest back. <laughs> yeah, Especially because uh, your movie, Hellbent, as I mentioned, is set during the Halloween season, on Halloween itself. So this it is. is a good way to get right into October. Uh, so I'm going to kick the show off the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest. And it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why are you genre, to the genre? Why do you think people like the genre? Why? Uh, just what, what's the engagement, but why horror? Hmm.
1: Um, I was exposed to horror very early on by my mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, she taught film and would bring uh, film home on 16mm and show them against the wall of our home. Um, and uh, um, so I was pretty bitten early on um, by, I mean, just kind of the uh, the nightmarish imagery, you know, it really... Uh, captured my imagination as a, you know, three-year-old, four-year-old. I mean, she started me early. Oh, wow. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) a bit later. But, um, and I think that as an adult um, and as an artist, I've been an artist from an artistic family um, my entire life, I feel that, horror allows for a certain kind of expression that uh, most genres don't allow um, It can be dreamlike it can be colorful, it can you know be completely unreal and still accepted right. um, because you know horrors fairy tale often I mean sometimes it's it's really gruesome and gritty and real and that's fine too but the audience al- understands horror is, um, storytelling in a way that a drama wouldn't necessarily be. So if you wanted to go someplace completely weird and have a dance sequence in the middle of it, you know, they are going to be... Why not? Why not? <laughs> um,
0: I really am interested in the parallel between fairy tales and horror. It comes up every so often, and I think that there that's a really interesting... Uh, analogy, because what a lot of people who who read fairy tales to their children now, like the modern version, mm-hmm. the disney version of fairy tales, as it were...
1: They're missing out on the...
0: Yeah, the the, the real... <laughs> on the lesson. <laughs> the, well, they're missing out on the lesson, and I think the actual tales themselves, as written by Hans Christian Andersen and, and the Grimm brothers, were uh, all, often much more dark than the way we interpret oh, yeah. the story. They were
1: horrific. Yeah. People, th- you know, little princesses had
0: their feet sawn off and all of that, and... Yeah, and I do like what you said about uh, it being a commentary because I do you feel, uh, and I guess it's sort of like at the heart of the show as well, that horror has potential to be uh, powerful commentary because of its ability to represent otherness in unique ways. Um,
1: yes, I don't know exactly where you're going with that particular question, but yes, I do think that it. Yep. It. Um, I think that horror can be. Um, can say a lot more um and and be edgier about how strongly it says it because it always has the oh but we're not real, you know. Right. So you can discuss, like right now, um, I'm sure that our current political situation is going to pop up in numerous horror films because, you know, it's horrifying, but I don't think it'll I think in a horror film it wouldn't be as fatiguing as if we were watching, you know, uh, or or rehash of the actual election or whatever, you know.
0: It's true. And I think historically there is a uh, precedent where horror tends to have spikes in times of Mm -hmm. economic or political turmoil. Sure. We think of the 80s as a very celebrated like moment in horror history. Mm -hmm. But during the Reagan era, it wasn't exactly like... It was a rough time. It
1: was. I mean, we were all terrified of being, you know, blasted. (laughs) <laughs> out of school from an atomic
0: bomb or something nuclear bomb exactly or the the rise of the uh the universal monsters in the 30s like is mm-hmm. neck and neck with the De- great depression yeah. so i think that what what you're saying is there's a catharsis to it because rather than face the fear of the world you can put it onto the screen
1: yeah and you can say more pointedly what you want to right. i think
0: I think that's a that's a really good impact. What I was getting at with the with the sense of otherness is I think that sometimes uh, horror, as as I'm sure you know, tends to be looked down upon by people who uh, run studios or consider themselves sure. the artistic elite. Yeah, and I think that it's often because there's a point that's being missed. The idea that like when used to its ultimate potential, it can be a mechanism of, yeah. a, of great commentary. Yeah. Well, I think
1: horror. Um it speaks t- speaks to us on um, a very, um, I don't want to say primitive, but a sort of a, a a primeval sort of way. you know, it's our our parts of our brain that we don't think with, but we respond with. Right. And um, because it, you know, there is that element of it feeling low, I guess, mm-hmm. because it's not, you know, right, it's not direct, it's all subtext, then um, maybe. Um, yeah, it's frowned upon, I don't know. And also there's the whole ghoulish, you know, oh, they're just kids, you know, throwing buckets of blood everywhere, you know, this isn't real art. Right. But, you Sounds know. like a good Saturday to me. Oh honestly. my God, it's so much fun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you said that you came from an artistic home and that mm-hmm. you started in the arts uh, fairly early. Yeah, I was t- two. Two? Yeah. All right, so tell me a little bit about that.
1: Um, uh, well, as family lore has it, um, and as I remember it, uh, my mother taught me to draw horses when I was two years old. And I um, lived my life with a sketchbook. I traveled with it everywhere, uh, up until college, really. Um, and I drew before I spoke, and just constantly sketching and drawing. And then ultimately, that became three dimensional. And mm-hmm. um, I, in high school, I went to an art school and was a set designer and a director there. I, you know, built giant puppets and all kinds of
0: shit. Do you? recall i mean other than you know your mom giving you this sketchbook and you mm-hmm. starting to draw horses mm-hmm. at a very early age was there ever a point where you in your young life realized you know maybe this is something i want to do oh yeah beyond just absolutely
1: honey- there was a, a there was a moment i mean already i was fascinated by um films because my mother took me everywhere right um to see them with her even when they were completely inappropriate um <laughs> Uh, and I'll get back to that in a little bit. Uh, there was one incident. Um, but yes, uh, we also saw a lot of theater. And when I was, I think I was about five, um, five, maybe as old as six. Um, one of my mother's creative writing students, James Duff, who created The Closer and I was now doing Star Trek. Oh. Um, anyway, so he's, he got bitten too. Um, he was stage manager for a play called Blythe Spirit and No Coward, no right? Coward, um, which is about ghosts in part. And there are a lot of ghostly effects, you know, books flying off of walls and all that. And I watched the show and was in love because there are ghosts in it. And then um, James took me backstage and showed me all the mechanisms used to create the illusion of ghosts. And it was magic. Um, and then I got to see how the magic worked. And I'm I was like, I need to be doing this. And that was when it happened.
0: And you said you started uh, in theater doing set design there. Mm -hmm. That's a really great way to kind of uh, be baptized into the world of theater with a Noel Coward ghostly. I (laughs) I love that. That's just like is very uh, on the nose for our show. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was looking at your your resume before I... uh, came in today and I noticed that you have done a lot of art department work. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. so it looks like to me that you've carried that love of, of creating Absolutely. an environment the whole way through.
1: Yeah, um, I love the other things I do, mm-hmm. uh, writing and directing and producing and assistant directing and all that. Uh, but they don't scratch quite the same itch that um, working with my hands and color and thinking um, visually like that does. They don't do that. Um. So I like to balance that out a bit. Right.
0: Now it's for me it's fun when I have people on the show who are filmmakers uh, who are known for certain things but also do other things such as, mm. as this. Uh, maybe talk a little bit to the audience about that side of, of the creative world. Because I think that sometimes when we talk to uh, filmmakers or you see interviews, it's always very much about the directing. It's always very right. much about the writing. But I don't know that people who watch movies always fully understand... What goes into... What goes into... Reading some... that image. Exactly. Yeah. And art department is so crucial to creating a world. Mm. And uh, it's just so exciting that that's something you're very passionate about.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I think that my approach... Um, is informed a lot because of uh, my background in theater, um, where you have a, a lengthy amount of time to create a you know a pretty specific space. Right. <laughs> um, whereas in uh, film and television, um, especially lately, it's you know you're given a, you know 13 hours notice to create a set, um, so that it can be a little different. But uh, <laughs> um, I think that when you are designing, um, you a good designer um tries to incorporate um not just what the director is wishing and wanting to see but you know uh, a designer thinks about you know the characters and the spaces that the characters inhabit and tries to find ways to underscore um thematically what the film is trying to um achieve or you know speak to Um, and you know that that can be boiled down to, you know, the color choices on the walls, you know, wallpaper and, you know, little touches of uh, personal props on the, the set. Um, sometimes it really is just like, what the hell do I have in my house that I can get to the set as fast as I can? Um, you know, that is often the way it happens.
0: Mm. But uh, Do you have a personal favorite set that you've designed?
1: Mm. Oh, well, no, I forget them. <laughs> that's fair I move on i don't I don't I don't really hold on to anything that there's one aspect of of working in film and television and in theater too that I really like is that it um it well film I guess it it is immortalized in a way but the, you know, you don't ever have, have to watch it again but uh, it, it's it evaporates you know you're finished with it at the end of the shoot and you tear it all down as fast as you possibly can and then you have a you know A fresh head for the next one.
0: It is interesting when you think about the nature of filmmaking in that way. Mm -hmm. It is sort of a lack of permanence, whereas like, you know, there are many people who have the nine to five jobs for decades and decades. uh, Whereas we work making movies and two weeks later it's done and you move on. But as you said, you also create a forever thing out Mm of it that is... Maybe something that you never look at, because I think when you're on the inside of it, it's like it's it feels very different than just going to a film.
1: I have never seen anything in television that I've done ever, ever.
0: How interesting.
1: Yeah. Um, I do go see every film that I've worked on. Right. Because the filmmaking experience, I mean, the uh, uh, the experience of watching a film as an audience member is
0: different for me. I can understand that. I uh, there's many things that I've been involved in that it's not that I haven't seen it. I just kind of get uh, in my head about it in ways that I wouldn't mm. other people's work. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I get that too. <laughs> so it's it's one of those where uh, I remember reading this interview once uh, when. MTV was sort of at at the height of its powers and they were getting ready to have uh, Paul McCartney do an unplugged. Mm -hmm. And he was saying how he had to get the producers to get him the lyrics sheets to some of the Beatles songs. And they were like aghast. They were like, how do you not know these songs? And he was like, you don't understand. He's like, we couldn't tour because it was too crazy to tour. He said, so a lot of the songs we wrote, and performed in the studio. And that was the last time. And he was like, the one thing that Paul McCartney doesn't do driving around is listens to Beatles <laughs> Yeah, <records."> seriously. <laughs> so we got the benefit of the Beatles, but he didn't. And I, I, so I often think about that. And I'm not in any way equating any work I've done to, like, you know, the Beatles. <laughs> but it's just I understand that when you're on the other side of it. Yeah. There is that separation.
1: Yes. Um, I have been asked before on, you know, oh, how did your date go? Did you pull out Hellbent and show them? I'm like, no, I did
0: not. <laughs> what is that about? People are just like, do you ever show dates your movies? No. no! Like that to me sounds like the worst evening <laughs> for like all, all parties. Watch me be completely anxious while you watch this. Uh, oh, my God. Yeah, that to me would be the worst to, to like just because I would. You're right. Yeah, there uh-huh. would just be an anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Speaking of inappropriate movies, you said that you had a story.
1: Yes. Um, My mother took me to see Alien when it came out. Um, And um, she pre-screened it and thought it was completely acceptable. I mean, it was a sci-fi film. It wasn't real, whatever. And she described it to me in detail. And up until that point, sci-fi for me meant Star Trek right so everyone in yeah exactly you know purple skies and bright colored you know costumes and pew
0: pew right
1: um then she took me to see alien with her friends a bunch of gay guys and uh it was a matinee and when we walked out into the sunlight after seeing alien I could not remember anything about the movie I was so traumatized and six months later she finally took me to therapy (laughs) <laughs> I, because I could not be left alone. I was, I had nightmares every single night. And in fact, I had a weekly nightmare for 14 years about Alien. Um, and, you know, eventually I, uh, the dreams evolved so that eventually the alien and I actually became palsy enough to have children. Um, And then once we had babies, then it was okay. I never had nightmares about alien anymore.
0: So I guess I have to know, have you seen it since? Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I see it several times a
0: year. Okay. yeah. Uh, It's so interesting, the things that traumatize us and Mm -hmm. how we – I think that is a hallmark of of people who work within genre material is sometimes – uh, were horrified by things, but instead of running from it... I mean, you become obsessed with it, in yeah, a way. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And uh, it becomes... It's it's so part of me, right? that film, even though I had nothing to do with it, um, that it is sort of revisiting my, my squishy insides every time I see it.
0: It is definitely a movie that is so visceral. Mm. And I think that if you are... Yeah, if you're like you know engaging with the Shatner of it all, and all of, <laughs> and all of a sudden, yes, you're in Ridley Scott's head. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, <It's> not prepared. <laughs> no, and uh, you know what's interesting too is is not to to draw the parallel, but it, it does come up when Alien is discussed. There's something like oddly sexually aggressive about Alien. Oh too. yeah. Uh, the first one the first least. one yeah yeah. yeah. like the, the later movies kind of become mm. like die hard in space yeah. but I do uh, which is fine but I do think that there's something strangely uh, aggressive about it and I you know greater scholars than I have, have commented on like just the phallic imagery of Giger's yeah, work yeah right well the I mean the, the body our bodies as humans are so easily
1: violated in Ailey and it's tongue you know Pokes holes and things, and poor Veronica Cartwright gets the tail rape. I mean, it's yeah. you know we are we're just
0: little fuck puppets for that thing. Could I say that you can? Okay. We certainly are all for uh, yeah. Okay, naughtiness. <laughs> uh, what's fascinating too is how infrequently uh, Alien comes up in discussions of body horror movies, but I think mm. in a way it's like the ultimate body horror mm. movie. Uh, not in the Cronenberg sense, right. of course, but like in this idea that. uh, it is forcible. Um, yes. Penetration. Yeah. Really. It's yeah.
1: it's yeah. It's more rape than Cronenberg. Cronenberg yeah. is about the body betraying you, right? Um, which you know I understand from his dad's cancer experience and all. Apparently that's where a lot of the, where those seeds came from. But uh, um,
0: but yeah, it is. Uh, Alien is all about violation. Yeah, and uh, specifically, it just is is. Uh, no, it stays with you. I, yeah. I don't even know where I was going with that. I just like started thinking of uh, of John Hurt on the table, and I kind of like lost yeah. my way. Yeah. Uh, so you see Alien. It's a traumatic experience for years. Yeah. Uh, and this is kind of a good time to talk about sort of your own transition into the world of movies. Because we talk about how... Uh, sometimes the things that we're horrified by become our obsessions and Mm -hmm. they end up in our work. And you do have a a body of genre work in in the films that you've made. Uh, But we discussed in in your timeline how you started in the theater and were Mm -hmm. interested in set design. So at what point did you start pivoting and think, well, beyond doing art department stuff, Mm -hmm. I want to write and direct movies?
1: That was always uh, the goal. Mm -hmm. I mean, even when I was very young. Um, I worked in theater to get practical experience. Um, It was cheap. Um, And we did a lot in, I mean, we did 80 shows a year in high school. Um, But the goal ultimately was always to work in film. Um, And because I had all the art experience, it was easy to transition over to film through art department. Um, But it was a lot harder to get out of art department into Uh, writing and directing. I mean, I started writing early on. um, But, you know, writing something and getting someone to read it are very different.
0: (laughs) Yes, absolutely.
1: (laughs) Someone other than one's mother. (laughs) Um, So I didn't... uh, um, When I moved to Los Angeles, um, it's almost been 20 years, I guess. Uh, That is uh, when I started getting heavily into production. Mm -hmm. And that then dovetailed in with uh, getting... Um, my first writing and directing opportunity, um, which was hellbent, um, and kind of unusual Hollywood story, I guess. Um, I was working for a production company and was walking from my office down a hallway, um, and past the producer, producer's office. And he popped out and grabbed me out of the hallway and threw me into a pitch meeting, um, with, uh, Joe Wolf and Erwin Yablons, um, and uh, the producer said, Stephen Wolf is his name, he said, we want to make a uh, a gay uh, Halloween movie. What do you got?
0: And so you came up with it on the fly?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it was a little, you know, it wasn't immediately out of my mouth. It's not like I've been thinking about it. But um, one, within, you know, the first few seconds, I guess, uh, Joe Wolf and Erwin uh, Blonde said that one of their... Um, touchstone movies for this uh, was a film called Black Orpheus, um, which I think is from the f- uh, 60s. I guess it was the 60s. And um, uh, I happen to be very familiar with that movie because of my mother. Um, so immediately we bonded over that. Um, it's a uh, Black Orpheus takes place uh, in Rio during Carnival. And essentially it's Oedipus and Eurydice, uh, where Oedipus, and it's a love story and death is following uh, the woman the entire time throughout the carnival until you know she finally dies, um, spoiler, um, <laughs> but anyway, it's just you know talking about the 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 um the costumes and the the kind of the carnival atmosphere. That's what they wanted right. um, from WeHo. Um, so as soon as we got that out in the open, we were we were good.
0: So from that initial pitch meeting, how long did it take you to get the script going? Um,
1: my memory is right after the pitch meeting, it was Halloween, like within weeks. And so I had to kind of cobble together just the basic one-liner for what we were going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had to go out with uh, three different film crews just to get B-roll.
0: So what you shot within weeks of the first pitch meeting? Yeah. That's wild. Mm-hmm. I love that, but that's insane. Yeah, and I had
1: no, no <laughs> idea what we were doing. <laughs> um, and uh, um, we we shot actually two years, two, the two sequential years. And uh, um, in time for the second uh, Halloween on Santa Monica Boulevard, that party, um, I did have a script and we cast actors and all of that. Uh, but for the first year, we wanted to get as much B-roll as possible. Um,
0: which, you know, was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, about mm. this movie. And I, it's just kind of blowing my mind that like you got some of the footage very early on. Uh, yeah. But one of, the, I think one of the big hallmarks of the film is exactly what you said, this kind of going out into Carnival and your homage to Black Orpheus mm. in that way, uh, where you shot segments during the West Hollywood Halloween yeah. festivities, which for people who don't live in LA is thousands of people. It's thousands chaos in in the streets. Like half a million people yeah. or something. It's crazy. And, uh, you know, that to me, just even as a human being living in Los Angeles, is a daunting thing to just like go to, let alone the idea, like from a filmmaker's perspective, going in and trying to shoot there. So right. I'm kind of curious just like about some of the challenges of going into that.
1: It was the Wild West. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, yeah. it. Uh, well, we had, you know, four or five very young actors. They were all in their early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um and they were, uh, you know, thrown into this very gay kind of raucous environment, you know? So I think there was a little bit of a being shell shocked there. Right. Um, and, uh, just trying to communicate with them was, was a challenge, uh, you know, cause I, I wouldn't, I'd be behind the camera and the camera would be a distance away. So it'd be, you know, shooting them and, you know, a drag queen would stumble up and throw up in front of us or, you know, we had lots of outtakes. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know,
0: we, we, we got what we got. Now, I'm kind of curious. Is licensing, you know, how when you do like extras yeah. and things, and yeah. you have to do paperwork. Yep. Is licensing more tricky when uh, you can't actually see people's faces? No, it's easier. Because I you can't.
1: Uh, uh, we still, for all the camera crews, um, for the three camera crews the first year and then our A unit the second, um, we definitely had... Uh, production assistants out there with uh, taking photographs of people and signing releases and all that to make sure. Um, and there were some people who refused to sign, but still jumped in front of our camera over and over again. Of course, of course. Um, so I had to be uh, pretty careful about that. I had um, when I was editing those sequences that we actually shot at the the carnival. I had a uh, like a chart of faces um, that had uh, signed releases, so I could make sure that you know if they weren't on that chart, that I got rid of them.
0: That's really smart. That's a good yeah. way to handle that. Uh, so the movie, I guess, took approximately a year to make because you had breaks in the Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, and once we... Um, yes, we shot initially the first Halloween where it was all B-unit, um, and then I wrote the script, um, and we cast and all of that for in time for the next Halloween. And then uh, we actually got into... The actual production of the film because uh, we had to recreate a lot for the Santa Monica Boulevard on st- on sound stages, oh. um, just because for control reasons, right? Um, and uh, it it took a while to shoot because it was an unconventional shoot in its scheduling. We would shoot for three or four days um, if we were lucky, and then sh- and then shut down for a week and start up again and shut down. Um, and if you're carefully watch the show like I do, you'll see that everyone's hair gets long, and then it gets
0: short, and then the, the killer gets fat, and then he gets skinny. <laughs> well, I think a great uh, advantage that you have of it being set at Halloween is they're frequently in Halloween costumes, so you could probably obscure yeah. things here yeah, and there. Yeah. Uh, and, but then, so the movie comes out, and it automatically gets this traction of being mm. really the first openly gay slasher movie right and one of the things i really like about what you you shared one of my my, my kind of secret obsessions about genre films is discovering that genre films were influenced by non-genre mm-hmm. movies or mm-hmm. something because black orpheus while elements of genre and for those of you who haven't seen black orpheus it was beautifully remastered in on the criterion collection you should go <laughs> check it out i am not paid by them to endorse it so this is just an earnest uh bump for good cinema um I love that. I love because you know it's, it's so int- frequently in the world of horror. Is it kind of like incestuous, where it's like yeah. I made I made a slasher movie because I like Friday the Thirteenth, right? And it's just like how many of those can we have? Yeah. But then to know that you went to this like really cool international art film, right? Uh, to to uh, be your inspiration, and now I, I didn't know that until we sat down today. And now thinking of the movie, I'm like, oh, I can totally see it, especially with the like the silhouetted villain and Mm -hmm. uh just taking place at a carnival setting uh i just think that's really cool and i I totally sidetracked my own question uh (laughs) but what i was going to say is there's it, it comes out and automatically gets the attention of of being essentially the first gay slasher movie right and uh that must have been kind of a wild ride well it was it definitely helped uh keep hellbent in
1: the conversation right um yeah, it it was, uh, you know. I think that we were kind of at a tricky nexus too, mm-hmm. um, and there was a lot of discussion behind the scenes uh, with how to promote the film. Do you target a horror audience um, or do you target a gay audience? Um, those were those apparently were our choices at that time. Right. I mean, I I might have issue with that, but you know, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was a really fun time because I got. To, to say that, right. you know, that I'm the director of the, the first gay slasher film. And, you know, I think that technically it's probably not true because there are other films that are not specifically gay that have gay characters that are slashers or sure. whatever in there. But um, this is, I think, legitimately the first time in a horror film where all the major characters are gay or bisexual. Um, and... Um, and it's a horror film. They're just living out their lives in a horror film.
0: Right. And I think that's exactly the the nail on the head is, is they are just living their lives. Yeah. I think frequently before it was always like a hinging point mm-hmm. where the gay was the, the 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 concept or the, you know, like coming out movies where it's all about right. them specifically being gay. Whereas right. they're already gay. That's not really the point of the characters. No they're, one is wrestling with that in this no, movie. they're having a great time, honestly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> until well, until <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I'm curious though. When you say that there was kind of the challenge in the marketing, uh, did that hinder it going out to festivals at all? With that, like, was there a lot of like pushback?
1: Um, the producers targeted. They they chose. Uh, to target gay audiences Mm -hmm. that's what they were familiar with um, with their previous body of work Um, this is not by the way uh, uh, Joe Wolf who was the executive producer he did uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and was involved with Halloween Um, this was not his decision right Um, he was sort of hands off at this point saying "Uh, we don't know what we've got you go figure it out um but the uh the actual production producers um they opted to go the gay route and so we went to all kinds of gay festivals that was not a problem at all sure um i really pushed for targeting some of horror festivals and we were able to get into a few but that just wasn't their world and i didn't know what the hell i was doing myself otherwise i would have you know uh taken the reins at that point um but we got into scream fest and um and then some others, oh, maybe one or two European ones. Um, uh, but uh, interestingly, th- um, this was one of the hurdles that we had of doing, uh, uh, of having a gay horror film. Um, I didn't have a title for this movie. Mm-hmm. I could not, for the life of me, figure out a title. So the producers decided to have a contest to you know open to the public to submit potential titles for this movie, and we would select one of them. And we got in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of titles, and they were all so campy and awful. Um, And that was, you know, it's like, uh, you know... Uh, boys sucking knives and that kind of thing it was yeah. just like that shit Yeah. Um, not even all that clever no no I mean you know it just didn't fit the film even if they were clever um. and that was sort of the hurdle we were up against is that people the general audiences out there when they think gay and they think horror they're assuming that it's going to be some you know camp film where you know it's going to be essentially you know drag race or something sure you know yeah. but with, with someone with blood Um and that's fine it just wasn't the film um but uh i realized then that we had something that w- they p- people were not expecting which is good right. but it was also going to be a harder sell
0: i think sometimes when you're at the forefront of something yeah. it, there is always a challenge that the people who come after you don't necessarily exactly. have to face. So you, exactly. you were carving a path that was so unique that, like, I still hear it from a lot of film, uh, makers who uh, make horror content where it's like, is this more for queer festivals or is this mm-hmm. more for horror festivals? But I think now there's more of an integration uh, and a We see more variety. Yeah. And a lot more content, too. But... Yeah. I also, you know, when you make a movie, as, as you said, like there's that sort of idea where you work on it so intensely and then you move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you ever suspect, even knowing that this was sort of groundbreaking material, that this was a film that you would be talking about <laughs> all these years later? No. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, I don't think in those terms. <laughs> right. But it's got to be gratifying. Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I've had a... a challenging relationship with this movie you know it's my first movie right um and certainly you know I I call it my three-legged dog um I guess all my all films I work on are going to be a three-legged dog in some way right um you know I love it and yet at the same time it's defective (laughs) (laughs) um but uh yeah no I'm absolutely I I'm coming around to really enjoying it again and you know accepting it for all of its flaws and
0: well, I you know, one of my favorite things about the month of October and doing what I do is like at any point this month I will see that like article that comes out, the think mm. piece of like, what queer horror movies should right. you watch? And yours is always included. And there's gotta be, you know, that's just so cool the impact that yeah. this movie had.
1: Yeah, I, I'm I am gratified for that and surprised. Um, I didn't really think that far ahead. Um, Every year I get uh, emails from people or Facebook messages from people who I've never met, you know, saying, you know, I I just wanted to say I saw this when I was having a hard time coming out and, you know, it just really made an impact on me and all that. And that's
0: amazing. Love it. Well, before we move on to uh, the other films in your oeuvre, I (laughs) I know, I know for a fact that Dead for Filth fans would uh, hold me... Uh, accountable if i didn't ask this question. Mm. Uh would you or have you ever considered do you a know what the sequel Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Um yes, there was a sequel that was somewhat planned. I did have a story. Um and uh um it was i actually almost preferred the sequel because we were freed from having to do all the setup of the first film. Right. Um, Some of the challenges of the first film in Hellbent or, you know, it took place over a limited number of hours. You never knew who the killer was. You didn't, you know, there just wasn't a practical way to do that. Um, And in the second film, I didn't have those constraints. Um, So I got to explore, you know, relationships that were hinted at in the first film and all that. Um, And continue on with, you know, the character of the devil um, exploring that. Um, however, uh, no, I don't think a sequel will ever be made. Um, there were just too many rights issues, I think. Gotcha. You know, it's just everybody had a a claim on a piece of it. And ultimately, the, you know, the pie was more than 100%. So,
0: well, I think sometimes the truth about show business is the business side can oft interfere. Yes, so.
1: absolutely. But um, yeah, we were sort of hopeful for that, but um, I am happy for Hellbent to be a
0: standalone, you know. I, I think that one of uh, m- to me, one of the great moments in slasher history, uh, was is that knife on the glass eye, uh-huh. uh, which I do, is not a spoiler because it's literally on the cover, it's of the on DVD. the cover. Um, but it was
1: lampooned in uh, one of the scary movies, was it? Yeah, what? oh, yeah, they totally, um. I think it's three.
0: That to me is like the equivalent of having weird owl satires oh, or something like
1: a true hat tip. I <laughs> had no idea it was coming, um, and uh, when I saw it, I just jumped out of my seat. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was definitely the, the eye. Oh my god, that's so great! I mean, what uh, else would it be? <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, that to me, uh, that image always because eye stuff always weirds me out. Yeah, and that uh, that
1: was actually from my childhood or uh, my teen years in high school. Uh, um, my best friend. And I were sitting across the table from each other in school, and he had a, a, a metal ruler that he was scratching under his eyelid. And I looked up and I said, you don't do that. You'll put your eye out. And he looked at me, stuck his ruler under his eye, and popped his eye out into my book. Oh, my God. And <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that he'd had a, he had a glass eye.
0: That's wild. Yeah.
1: All the time I'd known him, I'd never realized. I'm not really attentive, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, definitely stuck with me.
0: As it, <laughs> As it would. That to me is more traumatizing <laughs> than Alien. Like, I'm sorry. I have to say, if someone popped their eye out in my, my textbook. Oh my God. Uh, so from from horror nights at Halloween and uh, West Hollywood shenanigans mm-hmm. um, to... Zoe Bell. Oh, yeah I, ha- I have to ask about this movie. Uh, I love Zoe Bell. She's one of the most acclaimed stunt people in the world. obviously, wonderful woman. For people who have seen uh, Quentin Tarantino's Death Proof, they've mm. seen you know what she's capable of, as well as she was Zena's stunt yep. double. And you did this film Angel of Death with her, yes. which was written by Ed Brubaker. Yes, he's a comic book writer. He's a huge comic writer. Yeah. And so, before I dig into that a little bit, uh, because you have such an interest in the world of art design, mm-hmm. were you a comic book person growing up at all? Or strangely, I was not. How interesting. Um,
1: I was probably the only person on that team who was not into comics mm-hmm. um, certainly I, I read a lot of Brew Baker's crime noir um, in preparation for it in fact the this whole project came out of us trying to license one of his noirs um, I don't remember which one it is but uh, uh, you know Brew came back and said well I can't give you that because Marvel owns it or um, but I'll write you a new one right um, so uh, yeah um, but that was a funny little time. I was working with Sony, um, and they wanted to um, test doing a serial um, on their new website, Crackle, I think it was, um, and uh, a comic book was the right format for it. Right. Um, so yeah, I I I dove into that, and and at the time we looked into a lot of different comic books to continue with. Uh, um, that format, I mean, it worked really well.
0: Now, so Angel of Death, which is the t- the uh, mm. the property we're talking about, I forgot. And, and now that you say that, of course, uh, that it was uh, serialized online. Yeah. And then oh, you saw the movie version. I saw the movie yeah. version as it was released on DVD. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's really interesting because that's sort of at the forefront of like the digital era. Yeah. Whereas, you know, now it seems so commonplace to have web series exactly. and streaming. That was the first.
1: Yeah. <laughs> once again, <laughs> like on the cutting edge, <laughs> making all the mistakes.
0: <laughs> but again, it's like there's something cool to know that like more than once you have been out there before everybody yeah. else. Uh,
1: well, there was a there was a project I did with Sony prior to Angel of Death, um, Buried
0: Alive. That-
1: which was, um, they brought me the project um, and my production company at the time uh, of doing, uh, um, uh, I think a hundred little episodes, a minute to three minutes long, um, that would be scattered all over the internet, and the audience would try to put together the the mystery and you know to d- d- uh, discover all the parts of it. And this we came out just prior to um, we started. Um, releasing these just prior to uh, the Cloverfield uh, movie, and them doing the similar sort of thing, so uh, um, yeah, it was it was a fun, it was a fun experiment. Uh, Sony ultimately couldn't do everything they wanted to mm-hmm. do, um, so they simplified it. But uh,
0: now, was Buried Alive also released on physical media?
1: Yes, um, it was reassembled, um, recut somewhat into you know a somewhat watchable movie in quotes.
0: So I guess the question then for me is: Is that problematic for you as a filmmaker when you know you made it in one way that then it's it's reconstructed in a different nah, way? I don't care. You, you don't care. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just
1: wondered. No, not on these. Not on these projects. Right. Um. I mean, there there are certain things about Hellbent that completely gall me. Uh, with the uh, color correction when oh. it went to DVD, um, I wasn't involved with that. Um, but uh, um, on Angel of Death and. Um, I I supervised the edits for both of those, so I mean it was you know, well whatever.
0: As we know, horror movies get prestige Blu-ray releases all the time, so yes. maybe if Hellbent gets uh, blue, you can yes, maybe someday you can jump in and, <laughs> and uh, change it. But that's cool. Like I uh, I really think there's something very awesome uh, to know that in your career you've sort of been at the forefront and kickstarted all of these things. Yeah,
1: no, I I enjoy that. Because I do, I like uh, puzzles, and they Mm. all present, you know, very specific challenges, um, which now, you know, people are, are, it's kind of routine.
0: True, but it takes the hard work of someone first to figure it out, so. Or lots of someones. Lots of someones, it's true, yeah. It is, uh, we are not islands. Um, No, we are not (laughs) So, tell me a little bit about what you're working on these days. What's uh, what's new in the world? Yeah, what is
1: new in the world? Um, well, I have uh, I have been working in, as an art director for a number of years now. I was with Morgan Freeman's company for seven years, I think, and that just ended last year. I moved over to uh, um, some National Geographic stuff. Uh, just did a Netflix show. Um, and most recently, I was the art director on... Uh, Eli Roth's History of Horror, um, which was uh, kind of an amazing experience uh, for this. uh, This show will be coming out on AMC probably at the same time this airs, this uh, podcast airs. Um, uh, But uh, um, essentially, uh, we brought in 150 people or so in horror and they and interviewed them and I haven't seen the final work yet, but it was an amazing experience being on set and listening to these people.
0: And so the the history of horror is is really all about, I get the history of horror, it's in the yeah. title, but like you have like luminaries and actors and directors come Absolutely. in and talk about just kind of the the timeline of, of the genre. Do you? Sure. Ish?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, some people were more interested in that than others.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Um, Because you had so many prolific and, uh, notable people in while this project was shooting, was there anyone that you were really excited that you're like, oh my God, I'm in the room with blank? Um, well, Jamie
1: Lee Curtis was the big one for me. I think, um, there were, (laughs) there were a number of people who were, you know, fascinating to listen to. Um, uh, Brian Fuller was there. Um, John Landis. Um, I was not there for Quentin Tarantino or Stephen King, but they're in there as well. Um, but uh, I was there for Jamie Lee Curtis, and because, you know, she is who she is, right. it was kind of amazing to listen to her talk. And, you know, she's also so established in the industry, she gives no fucks. And will say whatever it is, <laughs> there's, no, there, there's uh, no tiptoeing with her. Um, so
0: uh, I'm curious to see how you know what they preserved of that um, and you know great synergy i believe this episode uh and i'm sure someone on the internet will correct me if i'm wrong oh they will is uh launching the same day the new halloween comes out oh, nice. so we've got uh we've got some jamie- i will be there if not the night before jamie lee energy up here yeah. uh do you have a favorite non-halloween jamie lee horror movie hmm i I
1: mean true lies comes to mind um, but I haven't seen that in forever.
0: Oh, she's so great in it. Well, though. I mean, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a, a shitty Jamie Lee Curtis role. But uh, that's true. that's Yeah, true. she's pretty great in whatever I've seen her.
0: I always, uh, I just always like to to slice Halloween out just to see what people pick. Right. Some people yeah. are like hardline the Fog fans. Other people, even. I am not. That's I. That's fair. I, it's, no. I think it's a very divisive horror movie. Yeah, I've had people, uh, dear friends of mine, that that's like their John. Carpenter. Exactly, the most. It's so fractured
1: to me. Yeah, I mean, I love the Adrian Barbeau. Mm -hmm. sequence um you know stevie wayne right yeah is that her name uh in the uh in the tower um i love all that um i'm i'm very uncomfortable with the jamie lee curtis sequences because i don't know why she's sleeping with that guy but she is
0: oh my god um
1: and i'm like run jamie run
0: well, I've always said that. And I'm sure
1: he's very, very nice. But oh
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Tom Atkins. He was an icon of the '80s. But yeah. I, I do think what's funny, and I've said it, I've said it before on this show, so it's not like I'm speaking out of turn. Um, to me, the biggest science fiction of the fog is the relationship between them, because she's supposed to be like 17, right? And I think he's like 50. Like yeah, I, I mean, don't know. It's like it's, like it's, it's it's like kind of like alarming. Yeah, uh, it is. But uh, <laughs> you know, I guess when there's fog pirates yeah
1: there's yeah all bets are off yeah get it you know love who you're with yeah
0: my my favorite uh jamie lee deep cut is an australian movie she was in called road games with oh yes i saw that at a sneak preview it is so underrepresented myself (laughs) (laughs) it's just like one of those movies that i think uh more people need to see and i think i probably bring it up every couple months on the show and if you haven't watched it listeners come on get it together uh I will say that every time I'm in the studio and on the microphone, even uh, I do think a little bit about Adrian Barbeau. Mm. I'm, I'm enough of a horror nerd that I, you know, I love mm-hmm. the idea of being on the mic talking to someone out there. Yep. Hopefully doing something with their day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's cool. History of horror. Um, people should keep their eyes open for that. Uh, what have you seen recently that you enjoyed or that inspires you? What, uh- Annihilation. Yeah, Annihilation was definitely very atmospheric.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I'd read the book and thought it was completely unfilmable. Um, So I was curious when it came out. I saw it three times opening weekend. I loved it. Um, Every time I saw it, it was a different movie for me. Um, So, yeah, that. (laughs) And it's also very visual. (laughs) It
0: it is. That's a good good recommendation. Yeah. one thing I like to ask guests when we have them in in October, mm-hmm. uh, since this is the Halloween season, do you have any Halloween traditions that you like? What do you What do you usually do for Halloween? I'm assuming you probably don't go to the West Hollywood Carnival. God, no. Oh, no. <laughs> you got I, your I, fill. I did my time. I did my time.
1: <laughs> um, uh, traditions. Well, usually what I do is I plan some amazing outfit, and I never do it. So <laughs> it's like, eh, I'm tired of this. <laughs> um, but uh, – yeah, no, not really. I mean, it's it's, I, I it's one of my favorite holidays, definitely, if not my favorite. Um, right. And I love planning parties and and ideas for you know for people's outfits and all that. I really enjoy that.
0: Um, but when it actually gets down and
1: around to me, I lose steam.
0: I I think I understand that. I uh, I love the holiday as well, but I always think about. Um when it's a genre that you're associated with all year round, right, right. It's kind of like this is April. Yeah, it's every every day. Halloween's every day in a way. Um, I think it was on Buffy the Vampire Slayer where they said uh, the the real monsters stay home on Halloween because it's sort of like amateur.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: <laughs> I don't feel that way, but I do. I do kind of understand the need to like stay in um, and just relax. Uh, I didn't say I was doing that. Okay. Well, <laughs> fair enough. So, where can people find you? Where can they find me? Yeah, if you do social media. If not, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm on I'm on Instagram,
1: uh, Dog, one word. Um, I'm on Facebook under my name, and what else is there? I don't do Twitter. Fair enough. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's uh, I it's, don't
1: update a lot either. I'm I'm really not.
0: Twitter is a slippery slope, I will mm, yeah. say so. Um, well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today thank and you. for being our first guest back for the October season. Uh, please listeners, as you were planning your Halloween parties, don't forget to program Hellbent in your lineup of movies to watch and yes, check, check out Paul's other work as well. I'm telling you uh, there's some high flying action in angel of death and uh, it's just uh, so much good content, a brilliant artist. I'm so happy to have had him on today. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night, and good luck.